So when I first told you that I was going to preach through the book of Numbers this year, you all thought I was crazy. Of course, over the past nine years, I've already given you plenty of good reasons to think that I'm crazy. But then we looked at the book of Numbers, we saw that Numbers is actually not even the real title of the book. That's the Greek Septuagint's translation and the title that it gives it. The Hebrew title of the book is Bemidbar, In the Wilderness. We see God faithful to his people in the wilderness. And it turns out that I'm not the only one who thinks preaching numbers is a good idea. This past Monday, a pastor wrote an article for Nine Marks Ministries on six reasons why pastors should preach the book of Numbers. And here they are. First, you will help them to read the entire Old Testament. Everything from narratives to law codes, prayers and prophecies are in this book. With numbers, we grow in our ability to understand and apply all kinds of things that we encounter in the Old Testament. Second, you will give them a crash course in biblical theology. The New Testament makes many references to the wilderness generation without explanation, simply expecting you to know the backstory. We see in Numbers Jesus, and it helps us to see Jesus throughout the whole Bible. Jesus, our covenant mediator in the covenant of grace. Third, you will show them the seriousness of sin. In Numbers, we see that their great sin of God rejecting rebellion was the fruit of their seemingly mundane sin of God rejecting grumbling. And so we see that we should hate sin at its root. Fourth, you will sharpen the image of priesthood, not only in the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ as the great and eternal high priest, but also the priesthood of all believers in which we serve each other and grow in godliness together, remembering that one of the main duties of priests was to protect the people from God, from approaching God carelessly or presumptuously. Fifth, you will fortify their confidence in a hostile world. A nation of recently freed slaves with no military training or provisions survived the hostile barrenness of wilderness. The hostility of their own faithlessness along with the hostility of the environment itself and the hostility of the surrounding peoples. And that should have caused them to be obliterated. But God's power preserves his people. And then sixth, you will celebrate our security in Jesus. If our greatest threat, if the greatest threat for God's people is God's own holiness, then our greatest hope is Jesus' righteousness credited to us. If God's justice and wrath has been fully satisfied by our Savior and Lord, then what's left to fear for those who are forgiven in Christ? We are more than halfway through Numbers, and the next several chapters, which we'll cover this summer, have some of the best narratives in all of Scripture. You ready to look at Numbers chapter 20? Let's pray before we do. Oh, Lord God, we are thrilled at the opportunity to have you speak to us, and we know that you speak by your word, that we might hear your word as your word. We would ask now that you would send your Holy Spirit to bear witness to the reading and to the proclamation of your word that we would receive it from you and that you would transform us, that we would leave this place different than when we came. 
to that end as always, we pray for the preacher, knowing he is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, Numbers chapter 20 is divided into three clear sections, and so we're going to look uh, at each one of them one section at a time and read them one section at a time. Uh, First, verses 1 through 13, and we'll see everyone gets good and angry. Listen to God's word. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into the desert that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? And then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he showed himself holy among them. Our passage begins by answering the questions, when and where? The passage begins in the first month. The first month of what? No year is given here, but this chapter will later tell us about the death of Aaron. Sorry, spoiler alert. Numbers chapter 33, verse 38, tells us that when Aaron died, he died on the first day of the fifth month of the 40th year after the Israelites came up out of Egypt. So this is the first month of the 40th year after the Exodus. A huge time jump happens between chapters 19 and 20. Back in chapter 10, we're told that they first set out on the march on the 20th day of the second month of the second year. And then rapid fire we get these narrative accounts about grumbling and rebellion. Chapters 10 through 19 seem to take place within a one to two year period at most. And so if you were watching this as a movie, there would be a graphic at the bottom of the screen that would read 37 years later. (laughs) We're also told that it was at this time that Miriam died and was buried. There is certainly a solemnity to this. And the death of his sister may have been a contributing factor to the anger in Moses that we'll see in a few moments. The death of Miriam also focuses us on, uh, on the where and the meaning of the where. They're at Kadesh, the same place they were back in chapter 13, when the 12 men who went to spy out Canaan came back and gave their report. 
And it was the result of the rebellion to that report that the Lord said that the people would be 40 years in the wilderness. And sure enough, the 40th year after the Exodus, they've gone nowhere. They midbar in the wilderness, in the desert. It's a tough place to be. Why does God providentially put his people in difficult places? Aren't our self-centered prayers essentially, dear God, make my life easy. Dear God, make my life easy and fun. Difficult situations drive us to Christ. At least that's what's supposed to happen. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis wrote, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Difficult situations drive us to Christ. We'll see even more on that next week. For now, we see all of this as a background to everyone gets good and angry. It's the first month, the month to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they should be celebrating in the Promised Land. And yet here they are, still in the wilderness. And once again, there is no water. We all get hangry, right? When you're hungry and angry, you get hangry, right? When you're hungry or thirsty or both, and anger bubbles up to the surface. The anger is always already there. The sin is already in our hearts. The hunger just reveals it and makes it come to the surface. And so it's easy to understand why we're angry. And so then it's even easier to excuse it. The book of Numbers shows us the danger of sin, the idolatrous heart that turns into sinful action. God rejecting rebellion is the fruit of God rejecting grumbling. And so we're to hate sin because we know it is an offense to God and also because of the damage that sin causes. God gives us greater cause to obey than the flesh gives us cause to disobey. It is a great work of sanctifying grace to ask God to protect our hearts in those times and occasions when we will be most tempted towards anger. To say to God, God, I'm getting hungry. I know that I'm going to be prone to anger. Guard my heart. Conquer it. Rule me. Draw me near to you that you might win me over in this moment. And so the next scene starts off that way. It starts off right and consistent. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting, fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The community, as usual, has articulated their concerns sinfully. But Moses and Aaron act as priestly intercessors. They say, we're going to take these concerns and we're going to bring them before the Lord. And what we expect to happen next is for Moses and Aaron to carry out exactly what the Lord tells them to do. That's what they've done up to this point. But that's not what happens here. The Lord told Moses simply to speak to the rock and water would flow out. A clear sign that God has once again graciously provided for his rebellious people. Instead, Moses acts out in anger, evidenced by his scathing rebuke, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of the rock? Moses doesn't say, the great God who has called us and delivered us, 
and who continues to provide for us will do so again. Instead, Moses puts the focus not on God, but on himself. Must we bring you water? You who rebel against me. And so verse 11, Moses raised his arm, struck the rock twice with a staff. Water gushed out in the community and their livestock drank. Did the community notice the difference? Probably not. They got what they wanted. They got water. But God's glory was stolen. There was no opportunity for repentance from the community. There's no doxological praise from the community. They got water, but all they got was water. They didn't get forgiveness. They didn't get sanctification. They did not get God. And God did not get the glory. What they learned was grumbling gets results. A sin was reinforced, and certainly one that doesn't need to be reinforced. The account concludes by showing us the consequences of sinful anger. Moses will not enter the promised land. Seems like pretty harsh punishment, but shows us that while Moses was really good, he was not perfect. We need one who is perfect, a perfect redeemer to bring us into the promised land. We need a perfect prophet, priest, and king to bring us into the promised land. Only Jesus can deliver us from Egypt through Bay Midbar and into the promised land. They did not get God, and God did not get the glory. Instead, they got the consequences of sinful anger. And yet we can ask but didn't God get angry too? Yes, and here's the point. There is a big difference between sinful anger and righteous anger. God shows us what it truly is to be good and angry. Earlier in the service, we read Ephesians 4.26. In your anger, do not sin. The ESV translates it a bit more accurately by keeping the imperative, be angry and do not sin. Did you realize the Bible actually tells us to be angry? In fact, it does it twice. Ephesians 4.26 is actually quoting Psalm 4.4. Be angry and do not sin. In Psalm 4, King David is crying out to the Lord in his distress. He's distressed because the people are turning away from God and seeking relief from false gods. In fact, the distress is not just some generic people doing this. David is hiding in the desert at this time because of a political coup enacted by his own son. You think you have problems with your kids. David has every right to be angry. In fact, it would have been wrong not to be angry. It is right to be angry at things that are wrong. That's what it truly means to be good and angry. It is right to be angry at things that are wrong. If somebody steals from you, that's wrong, and it's right to be angry. If somebody lies about you behind your back or in front of your back, that's wrong, and it's right to be angry. If somebody sins against another person, that's wrong, and it's right to be angry. Be angry and do not sin. The second part of that reveals the heart of the first part. The orthopraxy reveals the orthodoxy. My anger was right, and it motivated me to right action. If sin is what rules, then the anger is unrighteous. If God rules, then the anger is righteous. 
And so it isn't a sin to be angry. Righteous anger is being angry about injustice. Being angry is the right response to things that are wrong. You think you're angry at injustice? Just imagine how angry God is at injustice. God pours out his anger and wrath upon injustice. But God's anger is never sinful. And as we meditate on God, our anger can be rightly channeled, transformed, and redeemed. Bruce Banner was overexposed by gamma rays. The result being that when he gets angry, he turns into the Hulk, right? Bruce is often surrounded by injustice, surrounded by enemies who taunt him, and Banner says, please don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And he becomes angry, he becomes the Hulk, and Hulk smash. There are consequences to sinful anger, but there are also consequences to righteous anger. Righteous anger has redemptive actions and by God's grace produces redemptive consequences. And so with that, we're going to see what it is to get good and angry in our family from verses 14 to 21. Listen again to God's word. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom saying, this is what your brother Israel says. You know about all the hardships that have come upon us. Our forefathers went down into Egypt and we lived there many years. The Egyptians mistreated us and our fathers. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our cry and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now we are here at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your country. We will not go through any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway and not turn to the right or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom answered, you may not pass through here. If you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. The Israelites replied, we will go along the main road. And if we or our livestock drink any of your water, we'll pay for it. We only want to pass through on foot, nothing else. Again, they answered, you may not pass through. Then Edom came out against them with a large and powerful army. Since Edom refused to let them go through their territory, Israel turned away from them. Remember that Israel and Edom are family. Israel is the family of Jacob. Edom is the family of Esau. Jacob and Esau, the twin brothers who even fought with each other in the womb. So verse 14, Moses sent messengers saying, this is what your brother Israel says. Tries to play the family card. Moses tries to make a deal with the family, but this family has never gotten along. In fact, even tries to play on the sympathies, right? Is to say, you know about the hardships we have endured. The answer of Edom is to say, yeah, we know about hardships. In fact, you gave us the hardships. You want to start throwing things back and forth about what you did to me? Well, yeah, but you did this to me, so therefore I did this to you. Oh, yeah, well, then that's why I did this to you. Well, that's why I did that to you. And the vicious circle of I did this to you, therefore I'm going to do this to you. And the only thing that breaks the vicious cycle is an act of grace. We can relate because we know what it is to get good and angry in our family. Many of us have experienced the greatest anger in the family dynamic spouses angry at each other, anger from parents to children or children to parents or anger among the children. The people we care about most make us the most angry. It is good 
to be angry when people we love do something wrong. In fact, it would be wrong not to be angry. Be angry and do not sin. God's anger against Israel was great because God's love for Israel was great. In great love, God poured out the fullness of anger upon himself. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, absorbs the fullness of God's wrath so that the fullness of God's love can be poured out upon us. God's anger is a redeeming anger. God's anger and God's love are not an opposite to each other. They're complementary to each other. By God's transforming grace, we can be good and angry in the family dynamic. Our anger can motivate us to love actively with wisdom, strength, and perseverance because the people we care about most make us the most angry. It's an opportunity for the most love. Now in our passage, it's Moses who decides to travel through Edom. The community was supposed to move only at God's direction, the pillar of fire that would go before them clearing the path. If God wanted them to take a path through Edom, then Edom would not have been able to stop them. God told Moses that he would not be the one to lead them into the promised land. Moses made an attempt to do it anyway. Didn't work. God will move people when he is good and ready. And so he calls us to be good and angry and wait on his redemptive moving of the people we love. So we come to the third section where we see what it is to get good and angry in the generations, beginning at verse 22. The whole Israelite community set out from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. In Mount Hor, near the border of Edom, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will not enter the land I gave the Israelites because both of you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Get Aaron and his son Eleazar and take them up Mount Hor. Remove Aaron's garments, put them on his son Eleazar, for Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded. They went up Mount Hor to the sight of the whole community. Moses removed Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eleazar. And Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. And when the whole community learned that Aaron had died, the entire house of Israel mourned for him 30 days. Moses will not lead the people into the promised land, and neither will Aaron. In verse 12, the focus was on Moses. Verse 24, the focus is on Aaron. Neither Moses, nor Aaron, nor Miriam will bring the people into the promised land, because none of them was perfect. Only Jesus. Aaron, the first high priest, points to the final high priest, who is perfect. And so it turns out that it wasn't a lack of water that threatened death in the desert. It was unbelief and rebellion. Miriam, Aaron, and Moses, along with the whole community, were guilty. But we're guilty as well. So why do we get the promised land? Because Jesus is leading the way. The death of Aaron was not sudden. It was planned. A planned passing of the high priesthood from Aaron to his son. He is humbly stripped of the high priest's garments and they're given to his son Eleazar. It's a picture of one generation fading away and the next generation taking on the baton. The old generation is nearly gone. In the 40th year after the Exodus, 
there is almost a complete turnover of the people who are 20 years old or more. You know, Moses wrote a psalm. In fact, he only wrote one psalm. It's Psalm 90. And Psalm 90 is the solemn epitaph of one generation giving way to the next. Listen to some of the words of Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust. A thousand years in your sight are like a day just gone by. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. We are consumed by your anger. All our days pass away under your wrath. Who knows the power of your anger? Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Words written by a man who was humbled by the God who is always good, even in his anger. And so it's the natural tendency for every generation to think highly of themselves, expecting to accomplish great things and be recognized for it, and with rose-colored glasses to get angry and speak in condescending fashion to the next generation. Oh, kids these days, I tell you. I tell you, back in my day, we did it right. Really, did you now? <laughs> the millennials continue to take a bashing these days. And it's always been interesting to me how millennials get bashed for being given participation trophies. Because it makes me ask, but who was the one giving them the participation trophies? That was my generation. Which then begs the question, what was it about the previous generation that compelled us to parent in such a way as to give participation trophies? Each generation does some things well and other things not so well. And the older I get, the more arrogant I realize I have been about my generation. It's hard not to be. I grew up in the 1980s. And the 1980s were the best generation, the best movies, the best music. See, you want to argue, don't you, and talk about why your generation is better. Instead of sinful anger between the generations, in humility we can be good and angry, honest about our failures, and humbly motivated to help the next generation, to have the generations work together. Jen tells a story about once being a part of a women's Bible study, and they were walking through all kinds of dynamics, and they decided to skip the chapter about parenting because they were all older parents who didn't want to revisit all of their mistakes. And she, as a young parent, was looking forward most to that one to say, I want to learn from your mistakes so I don't make them again. I'll make new ones, but I at least want to learn from yours. We often have generations that don't want to help one another but just simply look down at each other and then try to reinvent it by ourselves. Psalm 145 says, One generation shall commend your works to another. That's the legacy. That's the goal, not to commend my works, but to commend thy works. And in so doing, we see God's grace. Even though Israel rebelled against the Lord, the Lord will lead Israel into the promised land. Today, even though every generation rebels against the Lord, the Lord continues to lead his elect people into the promised land of eternal life and the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. One generation gives way to the next. And the next generation was ready to take their place. Eleazar will take the place of Aaron. The Lord has raised up Joshua to take the place of Moses. As we know, the Hebrew name Joshua is translated in Greek as Jesus. 
you might think that a leadership team of Moses, Miriam, and Aaron, man, that's a leadership team that's hard to beat. But by the end of this chapter, their story is effectively over. They are dying dead and dead. We need a better leader, someone who will never get frustrated with us, never judge us, but who will show his people endless grace and deliver us in our time of need. Jesus Christ, our perfect prophet, priest, and king, our eternal redeemer. May the truth set us free. Amen.